Ezra chapter 1. By next Sunday morning, we will come to the end of what could be said to be half of our journey through the Bible, even though we're more than halfway through. Uh, But we will be done with the Old Testament, and the top of the sheets will change from promises made to promises kept. And uh, I'm excited about that. Uh, That'll be uh, after Andy and I return from Vietnam. Uh, We will be leaving at the end of this month, um, a week from this coming Tuesday, and be gone until September 8th. And uh, so that, that next Sunday that we get back, we will dive into the book of Matthew. While I'm gone, you're going to have Ricky Sowell, uh, who was an uh, uh, ACA alumnus and uh, pastor and a dear, dear friend of mine. He's going to be preaching to you that first Sunday in September, uh, talking about mission, and specifically related to the Myers-Mallory Missions Offering, which is that Sunday. And so be planning on that. That's uh, the missions offering that funds uh, all of our state um, WMU activities, including Camp World Song and things like that. And so uh, you'll be hearing from Ricky that first Sunday in September. We'll be glad to receive him. Well, there was a a pastor who was uh, officiating a very serious and somber funeral service because it was that of a, a deceased war veteran. And, um, and so he, um, this, uh, this deceased man's uh, military friends wanted to just have a very uh, serious moment where they would uh, walk down, the pastor would lead them down the aisle and they would come in front of the, uh, the casket of their fallen brother and they would, they would stand there and they would bow their heads for a moment and then they would salute and, it, and then they would all... Uh, the pastor would then lead them out of the uh, out of the funeral home uh, outside. It was going to be this very powerful moment there in the funeral, and so the pastor uh, leads them down the aisle, and then he goes and they salute, and it's just tears falling everywhere. And the pastor begins to lead them outside and realizes that there are two doors. One goes outside. And one goes to a broom closet. And at a split second, he has a choice to make. And as you can imagine, the reason why I'm telling the story is because he made the wrong choice. And that very serious and somber moment was destroyed as the pastor led that entire procession of men into the broom closet. And, and, and everybody kind of chuckled, you know, you, you, we try to create these things. And, and that's the kind of illustration that would be told if we were going to be looking at the books of Ezra and Nehemiah from the, from the standard perspective that we typically come to them with. And that is the perspective of leadership, right? In fact, just a quick internet search uh, uh, that, uh, that I did, uh, this, these were some of the... Uh, well, I'm sorry, I, I keep getting ahead of myself with that. Uh, in fact, a quick inter- internet search for Nehemiah brought up the following articles. Seven leadership principles from the life of Nehemiah. 30 leadership lessons from Nehemiah. 10 leadership lessons found in the book of Nehemiah. And so on and so forth and so on and so forth. Now, I have no doubt uh, that uh, these articles are good because some of them were by my dear brothers. And in fact, I saved all of them to read later because I want to grow in my leadership. Uh, but, and there are many lessons to be learned from Ezra and Nehemiah, but 
I think it behooves us to stop for a moment and ask, is that the primary message of this book? Our current series has afforded us some very interesting and probably unforeseen perspectives on the Scriptures, because for many of us, it's the first time that we've looked at the Bible from this vantage point, from the 30,000-foot perspective, just getting an understanding of the storyline. Most of the time we open up our Bible, we're looking to identify with a man or a woman on the pages of Scripture. So we imagine trying to be a leader like Nehemiah, maybe even trying to be a teacher like Jesus, or trying to be a lover of God like David. And this is not necessarily wrong, but I would urge you that that's not the first place that we should go. Today we have an opportunity to see this book's true design. And I say this book because Ezra and Nehemiah were originally one book in the Hebrew Bible. It was divided into two books for one reason or another. And so the way we're going to study it today is the way that it would have originally been read in the synagogues of Jesus' day. And that's going to reveal its primary purpose in a way that I bet you've never seen before. What we're going to see is not how great leaders mobilize God's people to do great things, which would be the standard way that you would approach the book of Nehemiah and Ezra. But instead, the point is that even the greatest human leaders are flawed. And God's people won't stay committed to good leadership or even to God's leadership unless they have new hearts. And so let's dive in and understanding that we're going to be going through Ezra and Nehemiah, and then you probably don't realize it, but the prophet Malachi that God raised up, the prophet Malachi, to speak into a specific situation that was happening in Ezra's day. And so let's look and understand this story of three leaders. Now, we mentioned a few weeks ago when we were going through the books of Haggai and Zechariah that Ezra does not appear on the pages of his own book until halfway through, which should tip us off to something. Ezra is most likely the author of Ezra and Nehemiah because his account chronicles how God raised up these leaders and sent the exiles or some of the exiles back to uh, Jerusalem. But when we look at it from this perspective, we see that this, the design of this book, this book actually shows us that it's a narrative about these three leaders. Zerubbabel, and everybody say that with me because we did that a few weeks ago, Zerubbabel, Zerubbabel. see, Andy's got it, okay, so Zerubbabel, and then he's the first leader that leads the first remnant, and then we have Ezra who leads the second remnant, and then we have Nehemiah who leads the third remnant. And so this book highlights these three leaders, and it tells about the way that God sovereignly and faithfully kept his promises to them by stirring in the heart of a Persian king, all three of them. And how that Persian king responded with resources, all three of them, and how all three of them met opposition. And then you think that each one of them is just going to be like this S-curve for Israel, right? So Zerubbabel, yeah, we're on top. Oh, Ezra, we just thought it couldn't get any better. Oh, Nehemiah, wait. Well, that's our American marketing coming into the play right there, right? It's not like that at all. In fact, a better description would be Zerubbabel, hopes up, hopes up, hopes up, crashed. Ezra, hopes up, hopes up, hopes up, crashed. And you guessed it, Nehemiah, hopes up, hopes up, hopes up, splat. That's what we're going to see as we look at these three stories within the larger story. And so let's look at this first remnant led by Zerubbabel. Now, who is Zerubbabel? We, we learned that Zerubbabel is, uh, it was the leader 
of the first remnant that came back when Cyrus, in fact, if you look at Ezra chapter 1, verse 1, we'll see there in a second, uh, when God stirred in the heart of Cyrus, Zerubbabel literally means planted in Babylon. That's what his name literally means. And he represents the generation that was born in captivity. He's from the line of David. And as he leads, everybody is hoping because they're reflecting back upon the promises that were given to them, just like we're doing today. They were reflecting back on those promises that the Messiah would come from the line of David. So as he is raised up as a leader and goes forth and is a leader from the line of David, everybody's thinking, could this be the guy? Could this be the guy? Oh, wow, this could be the guy. And so they follow him back to Babylon. And so look at how God does this. Look at Ezra chapter 1, verse 1. It says, In the first year of Cyrus, king of Persia, that the word of the Lord might be Uh, by the mouth of Jeremiah might be fulfilled, the Lord stirred up the spirit of Cyrus, king of Persia, so that he made a proclamation throughout all all his kingdom and also put it in writing. Thus says Cyrus, king of Persia, the Lord, the God of heaven, has given me all the kingdoms of the earth, and he has charged me to build him a house at Jerusalem, which is in Judah. Whoever is among you of all his people, may his God be with him, and let him go up to Jerusalem, which is in Judah, and rebuild the house of the Lord, the God of Israel. He is the God who is in Jerusalem. And let each survivor in whatever place he sojourns be assisted by the men of his place with silver and gold, with goods and beasts, besides freewill offerings from the house of God that is for the house of God that is in Jerusalem. And I showed you all a few weeks ago uh, the, the actual artifact in the British Museum, the Edict of Cyrus. It's a cylinder of stone where this is actually inscribed. And so Old Testament history comes to life. We, we see this as a real historic event. And so at Cyrus's proclamation, God stirs up his spirit, and Zerubbabel leads these, this first uh, group of exiles back to Jerusalem. And so the Bible goes on in uh, chapter 2, and, and it goes through a, a, a genealogy or a, a counting in chapter 1, uh, chapter one I mean, I'm, cha- I'm sorry, chapter 2. And they're there about seven months, look in chapter 3. They're there about seven months, and they begin to rebuild the altar of God and later the temple itself. And this is all met with a great degree of joy and sadness, because a lot of the older people who are in their midst, we, we covered this a few weeks ago, they remember how glorious and awesome Solomon's temple was. And yet, when they look at this little shack that they've put up that they're calling the temple of God, the young people get excited because they recognize that God has stirred in the heart of Cyrus and brought him back. God's been faithful to fulfill his promises. But the old men weep. And it, it literally says that you couldn't tell which was which, that it was all just kind of mingled together. And so as they dedicated this smaller second version of the temple, this weeping and rejoicing is going on at the same time. Now look at chapter 4. After they rebuild the altar and they start rebuilding the temple, adversaries begin to oppose the rebuilding. So once again, following the design, God stirs in Cyrus's heart, raises up, uh, uh, God raises up Ezra, I mean, uh, Zerubbabel, he leads them back, and now they meet opposition when they begin to actually try to do something. And so the opposition is... It says, look at verse 1, it says, Now when the adversaries of Judah and Benjamin heard that the returned exiles were building a temple to the Lord, the God of Israel, they approached Zerubbabel and the heads of the fathers' houses and said to them, Let us build with you, for we worship your God as you do. And we have been sacrificing them ever since the days of Esarhaddon, king of Assyria, who brought us here. But Zerubbabel, Jeshua, and the rest of the heads of the fathers' houses in Israel said to them, 
you have nothing to do with us in building a house to our God, but we alone will build to the Lord, the God of Israel, as King Cyrus, the king of Persia, had commanded us. And so essentially what this is, is these are grandchildren of the Israelites who had escaped the exile. You remember, some of them weren't taken off into captivity. Some of them ran away, they escaped, and they settled in the surrounding area, and now they've had kids and grandkids, and those grandkids see Jerusalem being rebuilt, and they come back and they say, hey, we're Israelites too, can we help? And Zerubbabel says, very, very seemingly very arrogant, very prideful, it says, you have nothing to do with us. Kind of turns up his nose at these people who would come and who are worshiping God as they are. And so this leads us to the first anti-climax. Zerubbabel? Maybe not. Maybe he's not the Messiah. You see, the prophets envisioned that the Messiah would lead all the tribes of Israel to come together and worship with all the nations when he brought his kingdom. And so even though Zerubbabel is the leader from the line of David, he is clearly not the Messiah. One down, two to go. All right, so the second remnant led by Ezra. Flip over to Ezra chapter 7. Ezra chapter 7. Look specifically at verse 10. And I don't know if you want to write in your Bible uh, first remnant on Ezra 1.1 and then second remnant, Ezra 7, because that's where the second remnant is led by Ezra. Look specifically at verse 10. Different king of Persia. This is King Artaxerxes. And God raises up Ezra, look in verse 10, for Ezra had set his heart to study the law of the Lord and to do it and to teach his statutes and rules in Israel. So Zerubbabel was a leader from the line of David. Ezra is essentially a Bible scholar. And he is committed to rebuilding the community of the exiles who've returned to Jerusalem. So look at verse 12. God once again faithfully stirs up, just like he did under Cyrus, this is almost eight uh, decades later, after Cyrus uh, sent the first remnant back, now Artaxerxes uh, sends the second remnant back. And so look at verse 12. It says, Artaxerxes, king of kings, to Ezra the priest, the scribe of the law and the God of heaven. Peace. And now I make a decree that any one of the people of Israel or their priests or Levites in my kingdom who freely offers to go to Jerusalem may go with you. For you are sent by the king and his seven counselors to make inquiries about Judah and Jerusalem according to the law of your God, which is in your hand. And also, he provides resources, to carry the silver and gold that the king and his counselors have freely offered to the God of Israel, whose dwelling is in Jerusalem, with all the silver and gold that you shall find in the whole province of Babylonia. That was a lot of stuff. And with the free will offerings of the people and the priests vowed willingly for the house of their God that is in Jerusalem. And so basically the same thing happens. God stirs in Artaxerxes, raises up Ezra, and Artaxerxes gives all of this stuff to go so that Ezra can go back and begin rebuilding the covenant community there in Jerusalem. However, there's opposition, once again, following the pattern. Look at Ezra chapter 9. Ezra gets there, and Ezra prays, the subheading of my Bible says, Ezra prays about intermarriage. Ezra prays about intermarriage. Now, what happens in this chapter is that Ezra is essentially grieved over the, over the reality that many of the exiled Israelites have come back with non-exiled Israelites or even Canaanite wives. So they've married people who uh, 
maybe when the Bible was originally, uh, or when, the, when the Old Testament, the Torah was originally given to Moses and to Joshua, they, they forbade marrying these other nations, right? The people of Israel did it anyway, and it led them down this path, this, 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 this long path of destruction. Because, you know, we shouldn't be unequally yoked, right? Believers and unbelievers. And that's essentially the way that, that, that this was being viewed by Ezra. The only problem is, is that Ezra, maybe he didn't have access to the scroll of Jeremiah, but the people were actually obeying God, remember, from Jeremiah chapter 29. And you could actually, above Ezra chapter 9 and 10, write Jeremiah 29, specifically verses 4 through 7. We all are familiar with Jeremiah 29, 11 through 13. So before I read that, let's, let's make sure we get, get an understanding of what's going on here. Ezra, being raised up by God, going back, teaching the scripture, godly man, biblical worldview, biblical understanding, right? Just, just oozing, oozing knowledge of scripture. And he goes back with all of this knowledge and his heart is grieved because he sees the, the divided hearts, maybe, of the people of Israel, he sees how they're being, once again, led into unfaithfulness by, is, by, by these people who worship a different God. Or maybe it's like Zerubbabel faced, and they have Israelite wives who were not exiled, and so they don't have the same background. And Ezra's grieved by this as well. And what he doesn't realize is that God commanded them to do this. In Jeremiah chapter 29, just listen, God says this, he says, Build houses and live in them. Plant gardens and eat their produce. This is to the exiles in Babylon, specifically where they just came from. Take wives and have sons and daughters. Take wives for your sons and give your daughters in marriage that they may bear sons and daughters. Multiply there and do not decrease, but seek the welfare of the city where I have sent you into exile and pray to the Lord on its behalf. For in its welfare, you will find your welfare. You see, God says, guys, I put you where you are for a reason. The whole purpose of, of me establishing my covenant with Abraham was so that the blessing could be restored, not just to Israel, but that the Israel would become a blessing to the nations. And he said, so you refuse to do it in your idolatry and in your paganism and in your false worship when you were underneath all of the kings that you set for yourself. But I'm telling you, that was, I sent you into exile to purify you. And I sent you into exile so that you could be a blessing to the nations. So bless the nations, follow God, take these wives and help them see that the God of Israel is the only real God. Well, now God being faithful to his promises, these people come back to Jerusalem and Ezra is grieved. Ezra is grieved. And in Ezra chapter 10, this mind-blowing kind of... Man, I've, I've gotten behind my slides. I'm sorry. Um, we looked at Zerubbabel. My wife's going to hurt me. She's a note taker, so I'm sorry. We'll, we'll get the notes in a little while. Um, so in Ezra chapter 10, we find that Ezra actually decrees with the leaders of Israel something called a divorce decree. And he says, hey, well, in fact, don't, don't take my word for it. Look at Ezra chapter 10, verse 3. 
Ezra and the leaders of Israel say, Therefore, let us make a covenant with our God to put away all these wives and their children according to the counsel of my Lord and those who tremble at the commandment of God and let it be done according to the law. Now, I don't know about in your translation of the scriptures, but in, in mine, Lord there is lowercase. And it makes it very clear. The translators wanted to make it very clear. There's no recorded place where God commanded this to be done. So Ezra, a great leader, who knew so much about God's word, who had great intentions, still did the wrong thing. He made the wrong decision. And that leads us to the second anticlimax of Ezra and Nehemiah. That even good godly leaders with the best intentions are capable of doing foolish, ungodly things. See, God never told them to issue this divorce decree. In fact, if you want to write above Ezra chapter 10, Malachi 2, 13 and 14. Because God raised up Malachi, the prophet, to speak directly into this situation just a few years later. This is what Malachi chapter 2, verses 13 and 14 says. And this second thing you do, you cover the Lord's altar with tears and weeping and groaning because he no longer regards the offering or accepts it with favor from your hand. But you say, why does he not? Because the Lord has been witness between you and the wife of your youth to whom you have been faithless. And though she is your companion and your wife by covenant, you have put her away. God told the people through Jeremiah, go ahead, marry him. Overflow the blessing of Yahweh into their lives. They come back and Ezra, a great leader with good intentions, makes a bad decision and tells them to divorce them. Some, some pastors even go as far to say that in Ezra chapter 10, this is the only place where divorce was the will of God. But Ezra chapter 10 speaks to that nonetheless, that this is a decision they made, but the Lord's nowhere in it. And it's half-heartedly embraced. And Malachi the prophet comes by later on and says, this is why the Lord's not receiving your offerings that you're giving to him. This is why the Lord's not blessing your land. Because you have willfully sinned against God in this way. Anticlimax number two. Another one bites the dust. Even though Ezra had helped the community of God's people, Ezra is not the Messiah that would restore God's blessing to and through Israel. So we've had Zerubbabel, we've had Ezra, and now the third remnant comes under Nehemiah. Enter Nehemiah, who just 13 years after Ezra returned to Jerusalem, Nehemiah chapter 1, he is in the government of this same king, King Artaxerxes. Nehemiah is the cupbearer to the king and is grieved by the state of the city of Jerusalem that the walls are broken down and had been destroyed by fire. And so Nehemiah chapter 1, Nehemiah prays to God, and then Nehemiah chapter 2, uh, he realizes that God's put him in a place to make a difference. And so Nehemiah chapter 2 chronicles the same thing we've been seeing. God raises up Nehemiah, God stirs in this king to bring about this change. God sends resources uh, through Artaxerxes with Nehemiah and even armed guards. But while Nehemiah is a godly man who wants to, he wants to establish Israel's earthly political security by rebuilding the walls. And of course, Nehemiah chapter 4, opposition 
comes about because rebuilding the walls provokes the, the surrounding nations to remember when Israel was the dominant military force in the entire region. And so all of this opposition goes on. And I've taught Nehemiah uh, myself and, and the, some of the leadership stuff in there is really good. And some of the ways that God, uh, some, of the, some of the imagery in there, some of the ways that God moves in the people is really amazing. Just, just the thought of them building with one hand and then having to defend it with a sword on the other hand. Nehemiah saying that they were going to set a watchman to watch for their enemies, but they were also going to pray. It's just these beautiful pictures of, of God's sovereignty and human responsibility playing together in this awesome balance. And yet, when the wall's done, it seems like we're at the pinnacle of both of these books. Because look at Nehemiah chapter 8. After the wall is finished in an amazing amount of time, and Nehemiah lists out the number of exiles and their names and all of these different kinds of things and the gifts that they gave, Ezra stands up on the water gate, which was overlooking this courtyard area where all of the people were gathered, and he reads the word. He reads the word for hours and hours, and hours, and the people repent. They cry out. They cry out in like Nehemiah chapter 8. They cry out so much so that in verse 11, the Levites had to calm the people saying, be quiet for this day is holy. Do not be grieved. And the people went their way and they ate and they drank and and they, they were restored. And then they celebrated the Feast of Booze, which was a, a celebration of God's faithfulness to them in the past. It seems like we're at a new day. Maybe Nehemiah was the guy. But it comes to the third anticlimax after the people confess their sin and after the people seal the covenant in chapter 10. It's been 12 years since Nehemiah came to Jerusalem. And the book's final chapter, the book's final chapter consists of Nehemiah touring Israel. Turn to chapter 13. The final chapter consists of Nehemiah touring Israel only to find this. And the, the last chapter of the book sums it up incredibly to, to kind of illustrate this design that we've seen. Look at chapter 13, verse 10. The first thing that Nehemiah finds is that Zerubbabel's work is undone. Remember, Zerubbabel built the temple. Look at, chapter, look at verse 10. I also found that the portions that the Levites had not been given to them, so that the Levites and the singers who did the work had fled each to his field. So I confronted the officials and said, Why is the house of God forsaken? And I gathered them together and set them in their stations. You see, Zerubbabel had gone to all that work to establish the, bring back the priesthood and put everybody in their place and rebuild the temple. And Nehemiah comes in. And the Levites were like, hey, dude, we were hungry. We had to go get some McDonald's. You know, we had, to, we had to leave and go get some food. And so they had abandoned their post. Zerubbabel's work is undone. And then look at verse, at verse 15. Ezra, Ezra's work is undone. In those days, I saw Judah and the people treading the wine presses on the Sabbath. Guys, you should know that. You memorize the Ten Commandments. You're doing it on the Sabbath. And they were bringing in heaps of grain and loading them on donkeys and also wine, grapes, figs, and all kinds of loads, which they brought into Jerusalem on the Sabbath day. And I warned them on that day when they sold food. Tyrians also who lived in the city brought in fish and all kinds of goods and sold them on the Sabbath to the people of Judah. In Jerusalem itself, exclamation point. Ezra's work is undone. These people don't even, they, they might know it, but they're not following 
the, the Torah, the law of God. And then the, the pinnacle of it all, he sees his own work undone. Look at verse 21. Remember, Nehemiah had built that wall. But I warned them and said to them, why do you lodge outside the wall? If you do so again, I will lay hands on you, right? Not in a good way. <laughs> He's not saying I'm going to pray for you. Look at, look at verse 23. And in those days also I saw the Jews who had married women of Ashdod, Ammon, and Moab, and half their children spoke the language of Ashdod, and they could not speak the language of Judah, but only the language of each people. And I confronted them and cursed them and beat some of them and pulled out their hair. Like any, the next time somebody wants to be like, Nehemiah was a great leader. Like take him to this verse and be like, ah, let's balance that statement out a little bit, okay? And I made them take an oath in the name of God saying, you shall not give your daughters to their sons or take their daughters for your sons or yourselves. And then Nehemiah, look at verse 25. Verse 25 says, oh, that was verse 25. <laughs> so Zerubbabel, maybe a good leader, had flaws, fell short, not the Messiah. Ezra, maybe a good leader, met some opposition, made some decrees that didn't meet up with what God had said, fell short, not the Messiah. And now Nehemiah, frustrated, Think about how Nehemiah began this long prayer of this man who was just pouring his heart out to God and wanted God's glory to be seen in Jerusalem. And in the end of, end of the book, we find him beating people up, laying hands on them, right? I'm a, if y'all ever hear me say that phrase, y'all just know, okay? I'm, I'm not talking about the good kind of laying on hands, right? He's beating people up, he's cursing at them, and he's pulling out their hair, not going to find that in a John Maxwell book, I don't think, right? So what's the problem? You see, our problem is not leadership. Israel had great, albeit flawed, leaders. And FBC, can I make an application for us? FBC has great, albeit flawed leaders. I, hate, I don't want to burst anybody's bubble in here, but while we have some men who are qualified by 1 Timothy 3 to be in ministry, we are a wretched bunch of sinful people. The problem is not leadership. You see, like Israel, our problem is half-hearted religiosity instead of true, spirit-filled, covenant faithfulness. Enter the prophet Malachi. We'll deal a little bit more with Malachi tonight, but let me just summarize what Malachi said. He said, Israel, your leaders, they're not doing their job. They're not praying together. They're not seeking the Lord and fasting together. But it's not just them. We saw already talked about how Malachi called out Israel about their marriages. 
Malachi would say, husbands, are you, are you loving your wives as Christ loved the church? If he were standing before us today. Are you laying yourself down to lift them up? Wives, are you submitting to your husbands? These two are actually mutually exclusive. Because there's a little phrase in Ephesians chapter 5 that says, As to the Lord. Submit to one another as to the Lord. And if you need help with this, this Sunday, I mean, this Wednesday, we're starting a study on marriage. We're going to try to focus in on that topic, and that's what we do on Wednesday nights. So he's addressed the leaders, he's addressed the marriages, these two very crucial parts of any biblical community. But then he addresses in Malachi chapter 3 this issue that every church member hates to hear, this word tithing. And Malachi takes them to task about their lack of faithfully and sacrificially giving to the ministry and work. David Jeremiah was a famous pastor, and he, was, he taught on this passage, Malachi chapter 3, about tithing. And, and he just said, you know, based on this passage, like every single one of you should be tithing. You should be, you should be giving at least 10% because in the New Testament, uh, the, the law is the, the floor, not the ceiling, right? So at least 10% to, to the kingdom of God through your local church. Right? And any free will offerings, you've heard that, that term thrown around while we've been in here this morning. You, these free will offerings are part of it as well. That, that's above and beyond your tithe. We should be giving to the work of the Lord. And, and he, 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 he stated it very clearly. And this couple came to him and they said, Pastor Jeremiah, you, you just don't understand. We're living paycheck to paycheck. We got some debt. We got some serious financial issues. We just can't tithe. And we love the Lord, but these... These issues are preventing us from giving to the Lord. And with compassion, David Jeremiah, he said to them, he, he challenged them, he said, I, I understand where you're at. He said, so how about this? At the beginning of the month, I want you to write your full tithe check, and I want you to bring it to me. And I'll put it in, we'll have it in a little envelope, and I'll put it in my desk, and we won't, we won't, get, we won't turn it in, we won't cash it. And if the end of the month comes and you need that money, I'll give it back to you. And be, I mean, the, the couple's like, oh, well, thank you. Thank you so much. We'll do that. And David Jeremiah's countenance changed and he said, shame on you. Shame on you. And of course, they were kind of put off. And they're just sitting there speechless like, well, why, is, why is he saying that? And he said, shame on you that you would trust me, a flawed human being, to be faithful to you when God has offered the same faithfulness to you. He is much more faithful than me. You say, well, that seems kind of harsh. Well, listen to Malachi's words. We'll look at it tonight. Malachi chapter 3, verses 8 through 10. Will a man rob God? When we talk about tithing, I don't think any pastor can get as, uh, as poignant or as, as, as direct as Malachi did. God through Malachi, will a man rob God, yet you are robbing me. But you say, how have we robbed you in your tithes and your contributions? You have cursed, you are cursed with a curse. 
for you are robbing me, the whole nation of you. Bring the full tithe into the storehouse, that, you may ha- that there may be food in my house, and thereby put me to the test, says the Lord of hosts, if I will not open up the windows of heaven for you and pour down for you a blessing until there is no more need. God says, put me to the test. Very few times would God say this to us in Scripture. But you see, what Malachi did was he gave Israel a way to see that their problem was not leadership. Their problem was half-heartedness. Their problem was idolatry. But we shouldn't be like Israel because we have the complete picture, right? We've seen God pay for our greatest debt through his son, Jesus. And we have the Spirit of God. And if we have the Spirit of God, then the Spirit of God is at work within us to accomplish the law of God through us, the righteousness of God through us. And so God says, put me to the test. Tithe and watch and see what I do. He's not here this morning, but this is one of those testimonies that Mr. B.J. Aspie has told me that for years and years and years, he, this, is, this, is what, this is what he has said. He said, I used to have so many financial issues. And I began tithing years and years and years and years and years ago. And he said, since then, the struggles haven't been nearly as intense as they were. Miss Martha can tell you, we're not rolling in cash on the, in the back room, right? But he said, there's just a peace, even when there's a struggle. That sounds interesting, right? Like maybe if you put the Lord first, the Lord fights for you. When you put the Lord first, and this is not a prosperity gospel. Like when you put the Lord first, the right prioritization of where God deserves to be in your life, it does something to the rest of your life. That sounds strangely biblical, right? But it's not just tithing, folks. Tithing, yes. What about forgiveness? God says, put me to the test. You think I can't do miracles? You go ahead and lay yourself out there and forgive and watch and see what I can do. What about just covenant community church relationships where confrontation and vulnerability are supposed to be the norm? That's not the norm like we want it to be, is it? Now we come in guarded. We come in with masks on. And we try to act like everything's okay. God says, put me to the test. Put me to the test and see how I bless you. You come to church every morning, every, every Sunday morning, God says, put me to the test. You set out to be an encourager today. Be, be a producer instead of a consumer and watch me. Watch how I will bless you. Put me to the test, God says. You see, sacrificial love and forgiveness and God-centeredness Healthy relationships, encouragement, mutual responsibility and ministry. These are not utopian ideals. These are the works of the Spirit in our midst. But as Israel learned, the Spirit will not work where sin is embraced and justified and explained away. And guess why this lesson was given to Israel? The New Testament says, so that we can learn from it. And so really today, the only question is, Will you? Do you believe that God is faithful enough, powerful enough? 
Do you believe God has your best intentions, your best good in mind? If you will, then there's only one response to the Lord, and that is to obey. And so for every single person in this room today, that's, that's the invitation. Where is God saying that to you in your life? Put me to the test. What area where you know the right thing to do, but you're struggling with that obedience? God says, follow me in obedience and watch what I do. That's what put me to the test means. That's Malachi's word for us. And here's, the, here's where I'll say for you, Ezra, Zerubbabel, Nehemiah, I can only lead you so far because I'm a flawed human being as everybody else is. Just like Israel, it's up to us to be confronted in our half-heartedness and our idolatry and our unfaithfulness and the areas where we struggle. God says, don't ignore those. You, you embrace those and obey me today and see what I'll do. And so the question for us as we enter into a time of invitation is, do you want to see what God can do? I don't know about you, but I do. I'll just go ahead and answer that. Like, for me, like, I want to see what God will do. So in this invitation, I want you to say, yes, I want to join you in that. And you answer in a way that reflects what God is calling you to do, because he is calling.